Well, we are returning this morning to the book of Ephesians, a study that we began almost a year ago now and have a few more months in, uh, next, uh, starting the 11th of September, we are going to be moving into the section at the end of chapter 6 where Paul talks about spiritual warfare and the, the fight that we are in uh, for the glory of God to stand firm in the Lord, to stand firm for the glory of Christ in our day. But we have seen coming into where we are this morning, the text just read in your hearing, and as we move ahead into the later parts of chapter 6, we have seen that the major theme of this letter of Paul is that we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, you will recall us saying that there are some 25 to 30 times in this letter where Paul says that we are blessed in Christ, we are chosen in Christ, we are adopted in Christ, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ before God. And this is, a, this is a, perhaps a, a bit of a strange phrase for us, we're not exactly accustomed to talking about being in someone else, but I do think we have concepts of it, I think we have ideas of it in our own experience. For example, over these past couple of weeks, I imagine that a few of us have been watching the Olympics, and there's an interesting dynamic that happens when we watch sports, when we watch the Olympics. There are times when we cheer for certain people or certain country as, as if somehow or other those people are us. So when Simone Biles wins, or Michael Phelps wins, or Gabby Douglas wins. Many of us say, we won. You know, and we identify with the winner. Or when Hussein Bolt wins, the Jamaicans among us say, we won. Or, or when, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, Emily Andall wins, the Brazilians among us yell and scream and holler, we won. If by some miracle, by some astonishing miracle, the Philadelphia Eagles were to win the Super Bowl, if the, the, the sea parted and the heavens opened and, and the miracle above all miracles was to happen and the Eagles were to win, I guarantee you that the Sunday after that, Many of you would be wearing Eagles jerseys and saying, we won, even though you had nothing to do with it. Why? Because there is this strange, wonderful, mysterious identity that we find in others. They represent us so that when our favorite athlete wins gold, somehow or other we win it with them. When our favorite team wins the Super Bowl, somehow or other we win it with them and in them. Well, that experience, I think, is a God-given instinct, a God-given human experience that's meant to reflect something that is very real, not imagined. Not artificial, but very real. That those who believe in Jesus Christ are in Him. Really, truly, in the sight of God. The Almighty God, the Creator of all that is. He who was and is and is to come. 
He looks at those who believe in Jesus as if they are in Christ. So that Jesus, who is, who is the ultimate victor, Jesus, who is the one who has won the ultimate gold, Jesus, who is the one who has conquered the death, death and sin and the grave, Jesus, who is sitting on the throne of heaven, we are in him. He won, we won. He is number one, he is first, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. This is a real reality in the sight of God. We are in Christ. And in the words of chapter 1 and verse 3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So do you want amnesty before God? then you need to be in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you have the forgiveness of all of your sins in Christ because he died for your sins on the cross. Do you, do you want identity? Well, here's your identity. All of us are sons and daughters of the living God in Jesus Christ. Do you want dignity? Then here's your dignity. All who believe in Christ have been made and remade in the image of God in Christ. Do you, do you want true humanity, then we have been made one new man, one new humanity in Jesus Christ. You want liberty. Well, there is freedom and from, from hell, freedom from sin, freedom from man's expectations, freedom from human bondage in Jesus Christ. You want security? Well, you have your security in Christ. We are safe in the never-ending love of God in Christ. Do you want intimacy? You have that in Christ. For all who are in Christ can say, Abba, Father, can talk to God as Father. Do you want destiny? Well, you have it in Christ, for you are seated in the heavenly places, and you're going to rule and reign with Christ. Do you want majesty? You've got that in Christ for you are going to be glorified and you're going to be honored in Jesus Christ. Do you want unity with other believers? Well, you have that in Christ. For we are all one in Christ. No matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter what our shade of skin or what our size, what our education, what our race, what our anything, we are one in Jesus Christ. All this in Christ. I just gave you the first three quarters of this sermon, or this sermon series in those ten minutes of summary right there. That's what chapters one through three of Ephesians are all about. What it means to be in Christ. Chapters four through six, those of you who have been following along through the months will know that these chapters are about what it means to live in Christ. To live in a way worthy of this amazing gospel, this amazing calling that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get to chapter 6 and the text that Bill has just read in our hearing, we come to the matter of how we are to live in Christ in the workplace. And the particular workplace that Paul references here is a harsh one. It's a demeaning one. It's the workplace that is occupied. If your Bibles are open to Ephesians 6 and verse 5 and following, you will see this. It is occupied by slaves and by 
masters. Brothers and sisters, the ancient Middle East and African world into which the Bible was born, into which Jesus came, into which Christianity was born, was a world that was marked by many conquering empires and a world in which slavery was a commonplace evil. Oftentimes, people would sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Oftentimes, conquering nations would enslave the conquered to keep them from rising up in rebellion. Oftentimes, criminals were enslaved. And so, when the Bible comes to us and God speaks to us through the prophets and through the apostles, God speaks into this world that existed, a world of slavery and masters, and he gives commandments and principles that were intended to radically reform the slavery with principles of justice and, and fair pay and compensation for injury and human worth and good treatment and the opportunity for freedom and emancipation. The scriptures speak to these things over and over again into the slavery world of that time. We need to know, however, we need to know that there would have been in Bible times as there are today, there should be zero tolerance for the kind of slavery that was practiced in this country or in Europe. The European American practice of slavery in which innocent human beings, men, women, and children, were targeted because of their race and were considered subhuman and would then be kidnapped by force and then be ripped away from their homes and their families and their countries and then hauled onto a slave ship where they would be shackled together on a floating vessel of death and would then be, if they survived that journey, would be paraded before greedy masters like so much cattle and would then be bought and owned and tyrannized as subhumans for life with no hope of full family joy or fair wages or human rights or ever being free again. I'm here to tell you on the basis of God's word, that was an evil that is beyond all words, that defies all morality, that defies every kind of biblical decency, every single Bible teaching about what we are and who we are as image bearers of God was violated by that kind of slavery. We must know that. We must see that. I know this text can be troubling. You read it. You see slaves. You see masters. Please know that what went on here and in other parts of the world was an unspeakable, inexcusable evil. The trouble is, is that the consequences and the repercussions of it continue to this very day. And we are still, are we not, we are still trying somehow to find our way out of the, the evil and the chaos and the injustice and the brutality of it all. 
The Bible actually explicitly forbids the kind of slavery that happened here. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul describes people who are godless and profane and sinful who were enslavers. The idea was these were people, the word actually means they kidnapped people in order to sell them into slavery, precisely what European and American style slavery was. And Paul says that is godless, that is ungodly, that is wrong. It's just echoing the Old Testament where in Exodus we read, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. We need to understand that God has always been clear on this. That what happened here in this country and other parts of the world was an evil beyond words. And in Old Testament times, those who tried to do that would have been put to death. It was so serious of a sin in the sight of God. So as we come to this text, I realize, you know, I, I'm thinking about this week. I, I have, for my whole life, I've read the Bible through a white man's eyes. I've read the Bible through a perspective and a life experience that has been white. And I realize that there are certain texts of Scripture that, for me, have not always provoked any kind of reaction or angst or, or hurt or offense or grief. But I realize that's not true for all of us. A text like this can be brutally hard to see in the Bible, the Word of God, and trying to make peace with it and figure out what it's about can be hard. Please know that our hearts are with you and, and we, we pray that there will be ongoing healing and ongoing grace and ongoing understanding as we try to walk out life together as the people of God. This text stirs certain things in us, but I also think that we need to look at the text just to learn some things. Because there is an application of this text to us today, and it's, it's to the workplace, it's to those situations in our life when we have bosses or we have people working for us. And there are some very clear principles that I think are valuable for us. Now, this morning we're going to talk about ethics, biblical ethics for bosses in a couple of weeks We'll talk about biblical ethics for workers. Now, you may be immediately think, well, I'm just going to turn off here. I'm not a boss. But you know what? I bet you are. I think we, pretty much all of us have at least a little boss-dumb going on in our life. You know, if you're a supervisor at work, you're a boss in a certain way. If you're a teacher, you're a boss. If you're a parent, you're a boss. If you're a, a mom with a two-year-old, you're a boss. There, you know, the bossdom, bosshood, exists for just about every one of us. If, if you can think of at least one person in your life who is accountable to you, and at least one person, even if he's, he or she is one-year-old, uh, at least one person who has to answer to you, one person that you have a responsibility or opportunity to give orders to, then you're a boss. And so this text applies to you. So whatever your particular boss-dom looks like, see if you can get something from this text and apply it to your life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to call the message, How to Be a Good Boss. And I'm going to give to you 
five or six characteristics of a good boss. We're going to just run through these quickly. They're in the Ephesians text and the Colossians text. We can call these the anatomy of a good boss, okay? First of all, a good boss has a kind heart. Whether you're a boss, a CEO of a major company, or whether you're a boss with a two-year-old, a good boss has a kind heart. Look at Ephesians 6 and verse 7, where Paul talks first of all to those who are workers, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. And then down in verse 9, masters or bosses do the same to them. Paul says, if you're a boss, if you're in charge, if you are in a position where you give orders, you give commands, have a heart of goodwill. The word means kindness. The word implies a disposition, a heart to bless others. If you're a boss, the, the first primary role you have in your worker's life is to bless them is to encourage them, is to have goodwill toward them. I was talking with a friend last night who was telling me that about an experience with a boss he once had who just had a remarkable capacity for goodwill. Every day at work, this, this woman boss would step into the office and, and walk up to different people in the office, engage with them, see how they were doing see what she could do for them, speak encouragement into their lives. And, and this brother, this friend said to me, it was just, it was the best working situation that he ever had, where the boss had goodwill, the boss had a kind heart. If you have a boss though, then whoever is in that sphere of your influence and authority is to be the object of your goodwill. Have a kind heart. Secondly, a good boss has a gentle tongue. A gentle tongue. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. Notice Paul has to tell them to stop, which implies what? is what they were doing. And he's talking to Christians here. Saying, stop it. Why? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it seems that usually, given human nature, there is a connection, a direct, almost immediate connection between being a boss and threatening. Do this or else. Any moms said that recently? Do this or else. Bosses threaten. Boston's bosses bully. Bosses try to gain work out of those who are under them with threats, with fear, with abuse. And Paul says, stop it. And then this is just a, a different way of saying be gentle. Be protective. Be kind. Be committed to the safety and well-being of those that are under you. Have a gentle tongue. A kind heart, a gentle tongue. 
And then third, a boss has an impartial spirit. An impartial spirit. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul says, keep in mind, you who have authority over others, keep in mind that you have an authority over you. And there's no partiality with him. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't look at a boss and say, better than the worker. God doesn't look at the worker and say, better than the boss. God doesn't look at the color of the skin or the economic status or anything else and say, oh, I really like that, that, not so much. God is impartial. And if God is impartial, the point here, one of the points here, is that we should be too. We should be too. If we're in a place of authority, we should play no favorites. We, we should be impartial. We should see each other as equal, and we should treat each other impartially as creatures who have been crafted from the dust and shaped into a human form and breathed into by the breath of God and shined into with the dignity and majesty of the image of God. All equal human beings, and if we are in Christ, equally redeemed, equally belonging to God, equally the sons and daughters of God. Those who are in authority should view others that way. No partiality, no favoritism. Paul hurries through here. He talks about, as we have seen, he talks about having a gentle tongue and a kind heart and an impartial spirit. And then, if you flip over to the other text that our brother Bill read in Colossians chapter 4, we see a couple more qualities of a good boss. A good boss in chapter 4 of Colossians in verse 1 has what I'm going to call a moral spine. A moral spine. Masters, verse 1 of chapter 4, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. The word justly means righteously. That which is according to what is right. Paul is saying to anyone who's in authority, anyone who is in a place of, of authority to give orders, give commands, tell other people what to do, have a moral spine to you, have a moral backbone, have a righteous character to you. Know what is right and do not violate what is right. Good bosses are righteous. And he says they are fair. They have in what you might call an even hand. Look at the verse in again in Colossians chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word fairly literally means equally. So, so the boss to look at his workers or her workers and see them as equals. See them as on the same level. And wouldn't that transform our workplaces? Would that transform our families? I remember when, oh, what, 37 years ago, 
as our first 38 years ago, as our first child was on the way. I picked up a book on parenting, and, and early in the book, I read this statement. It went simply like this. Your child is made in the image of God. Your child is made in the image of God. And my world, my perspective was wrong in that moment. Everything changed in how I viewed the parenthood that I was about to enter. Your child is made in the image of God. Of God. What does that mean, Tim? You are about to become a new dad. It means that your child is equal with you. Your child has dignity. Your child has worth. Your child has value. Your child has a certain majesty and glory to them. There is there is a bit of God shining into that child's life. That means that you cannot demean this child. That means you cannot talk down to this child. That means you cannot mock this child. That means you cannot call this child names. That means you cannot threaten this child. That means you must treat this child with a measure of the respect that you would treat God himself if God was in the room because it's an image there or a reflection of God. And it affected me, it affects me to this very day with six children and going on 11 grandchildren. And realizing every time I look into one of their faces, seeing a reflection of my creator. Look into their eyes. I see a human being. Oh, how careful I should be. For they are my people. Am I in authority over them? Yes. That authority does not mean inequality. And it does not mean demean or take advantage or boss around or threaten or anything else. Parents, you who are bosses in your home, realize that every child in your home is made in the image of God who is to be treated accordingly. And that means no abuse with the hand, and that means no abuse with the thumb. Dignity, value, worth, preciousness, preciousness. So whatever your boss is, these are the things that make a good boss. And there's one more, and I close with this. A good boss has a reverent knee. A reverent knee. Did you did you notice the? Familiar theme in both of these texts. In, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 24, we, we read that whether workers or bosses, we will receive from the Lord the inheritance as our reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Same themes in Ephesians chapter 6. What's the point? What is Paul saying to any of us and all of us who are in places of authority? Remember, you have an authority over you. 
Remember you have a master. Remember you have a Lord. And remember the day is going to come when you're going to stand before that Lord and give an account for your life, including how you've treated others. And Paul is saying to bosses, he's saying, get on your knees before God. Be reverent before God. Live out your calling. Live out your responsibility. Aware that you stand in the presence of God. If you were to summarize this text, it means this. That we are to treat each other in the workplace or in our homes, everywhere we are. We are to treat each other with golden rule love, goodwill to each other, and with judgment day fear. Because one day we're going to give an account to our mess. Golden rule love. Have goodwill to one another. Judgment day fear. One day we stand before the master. I wonder, how much do you live your life? How much do I live my life with judgment day fear? You say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't need to fear the judgment. There's no condemnation for me. I'm in Christ. I'm good to go. I'm going to die go to heaven. Jesus is going to come back, take me to heaven. It's just smooth sailing from there. I don't have to worry about hell. You're right. If you are in Christ, Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot go to hell. You cannot be condemned. Why? Because Jesus was already condemned for you. Jesus already died on the cross for you. God will not punish your sin twice. He already punished it in Christ. He will not punish it again. But that does not mean, my friends, that judgment day is meaningless and just going to be one of those things where you just kind of saunter through and say, okay, right, let's get on to the good stuff. No. On that day, our lives will be assessed. And on that day, the things that we have done in our body and in our hearts will be evaluated. That which is good, that which is not good. On that day, rewards will be measured out in heaven, dependent on what we have done and what we have not done, whether good or bad. Judgment Day is a day in which everything is going to be laid bare. Yes, we will not go to hell if we love Jesus. We will not be condemned, but we will be evaluated. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear on that day, Tim, well done, you treated others fairly and justly and impartially. You have a kind heart. You have a gentle tongue. You have an impartial spirit. You were a man who had a moral spine and you had an even hand of equality in all directions and you were a man who had a reverent knee. You bent your knee before the Master and the Lord. Oh, I want to hear God say, well done. I know you do too. And we live this way not to earn anything with God. We live this way not to merit heaven. No, we can't do that. Jesus did that. But we live this life because we have an amazing master in the world who actually has loved us so much that he came here to earth to serve us 
and died for us. The Son of Man, the ultimate Master, came not to be served, but to serve. Give his life a ransom for men. Oh, may we that our hearts be so full of the love of Jesus, our Savior and Master, that we will love others. There will be golden rule love in judgment days here. And all of our dealings with one another. This is, I think, the ultimate teaching of this text. The priority teaching is certainly love each other, treat each other well, but notice that ultimately we're going to stand before our master. Before we will give an account to the Lord. May, may be true to all of us on that day. You're going to hear, well done. Jesus saying, well done, you did well. Uh, let's live that life for this world. Let's pray. Father, teach us how to live. For, Lord, if you don't teach us, we don't know how. And our, our hearts always lead us astray. Our impulses, our instincts, our natures always seem to go the wrong way, Lord. So teach us how to live. Teach us how to love. Give us golden rule love and judgment day fear. As we live out our lives, our relationships, our responsibilities, and our roles. In Jesus' name, amen.